Web Services. Hi everyone, this is Hot of the Cloud uh, from Cloud on Out. My name is my Andreas. And my name is Michael. And we're recording this on um, October the 9th, 2022. So this is our weekly show about um, all things AWS. So Michael, we are not too far away from uh, reInvent. And this is the yearly conference from AWS and typically um, the weeks before and during re-event are packed with releases. But my feeling is that um, this week um, is there's not too many announcements uh, going on. So my feed reader um, is, is not too crowded as other times during the year. Um, but still, um, it has announced a few interesting things. And I think it's um, yeah, a good, uh, good time to go over what has been released in the past week. Yes, Andreas. And also what I observe is that the announcements are about very tiny changes. And I'm usually a big fan of tiny changes because those are usually the things that are missing that make our lives as users of AWS much easier. So let me start with one of those, I say, tiny changes. I mean, I don't know how much effort this was on the AWS side, but for, for me as an AWS user, that's a tiny change that, that could make a difference. And the first one is about um, server-side encryption with SQS. Basically, um, what's new is that now if you create an SQS queue, by default it's encrypted using um, SE, SSE um, SQS, which is basically the SQS uh, managed encryption key for encryption. It's not the KMS key encryption that you can also configure if you wish. Um, it's the, the managed one. And this is available for S3. For example, it's called um, SSE uh, S3. It's available for DynamoDB, where it's also turned on by default. And this is just makes it much easier for us because by default, the, the queues are encrypted. And this is important if you have to check all the checkboxes in the um, security hub, I think, um, because um, yeah, sometimes um, it is required that everything is encrypted addressed. And with this change, it's now super easy. And also it's very... Um, cost-effective because for this kind of encryption you're not paying anything additionally. I mean it was available before but you had to enable it. Now it's always on and you don't pay an additional fee for that. So that's I think very cool. Um, what I don't like is that it's not for old ones. So I don't really understand why it uh, is not applied to old queues because it really doesn't affect the consumer or the producer side. So there's nothing about IAM policies that need to be changed because of KMS decrypt or encrypt actions that need to be added. Mm. This is really completely transparent for the user of the queue. So I'm not sure why they don't enable it for all the queues, but uh, at least it's now enabled mm. for all the new, um, newly created queues. Yeah, that's it. That's the news. I have one, one reason is maybe that they don't want to break anything because when they change an attribute of existing queues, things like Terraform or other infrastructure as code tools might get a little confused. That might be one reason not to enable it for that old ones. Option. That's uh, that be a cool what I can option. imagine. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's cool that um, AWS is going in the direction to enable encryption addressed by default for for most services. I think so. It was uh, some years ago when Werner Vogels uh, on the stage of uh, reInvent uh, said this fa uh, famous quote: "Dance like um, nobody's watching and encrypt like everyone is." And I think they are uh, really rolling that out step by step to to all their services, which is I think a very good thing. Um, okay, yeah. <clears throat> Michael, um, I stumbled upon another announcement this week and um, I'm reading the whole thing. So this is Amazon VPC now supports two new CloudWatch metrics to measure and track network address usage. And I remember um, when we were working for uh, a consulting client, a very uh, huge enterprise that is, was migrating their workloads to AWS, um, they have been running into that issue that they were running out of IP addresses in their VPCs uh, from time to time, um, especially when spinning up things like EKS clusters, Lambda functions with VPC uh, interfaces and stuff like that. And the, the challenge there was to, f to find a way to monitor basically uh, the available uh, IP address ranges because the IP address ranges they could 
um, um, yeah, um, apply to their VPCs was was very limited because their whole network was very uh, fragmented. I, I fragmented, I would say. So yeah, this was a, a thing. And now I think um, what's interesting is that um, AWS has provides um, this this feature out of the box. So how does it work? I looked into that a little bit. So basically um, what AWS is doing here is they are adding two new CloudWatch metrics. The one is called network address usage and the other one is called network address usage peered. So the one is only for one VPC, the other is um, for the VPC and the VPC is peered with this VPC. We'll go into that um, in a minute. And um, um, the, it, it's important to note that those two metrics are not available by default. You have to enable them. So there is a new VPC attribute called enable network address usage metrics. You need to set this to true. And then AWS starts collecting those metrics. I don't know why they don't just roll it out by default to, to anyone. I don't know what's the reason for that, but that's how it is. And uh, it's a very new feature. So it's not yet supported by CloudFormation. It's even not uh, supported by Terraform yet, but I looked it up. There's already a Terraform um, pull request on GitHub <laughs> ready for review. So it's coming to Terraform very soon. CloudFormation probably next three years, something like that. Um, yeah, and um, what's, the <laughs> what's the thing with that? So how does it, um, what, how does it work? How do those two metrics work? So what I didn't know is so I always thought um, so when I add um, an IP address range to my VPC so let's say I also do 10.0.0.0 slash 16 which is I think the largest uh, VPC address range that I can specify the slash 16 net mask so I get something like um, 65,000 IP addresses with that so IP for, uh, for uh, version 4 and I always thought this is just the limits that I'm working in uh, within my VPC. I thought this is the, basically the limiting factor. Turns out that this is not 100% correct because there is something um, what AWS calls the network address usage. And by default, um, each VPC can have um, 65,000 um, network address usage units which is a little lower than the um, um, total IP addresses. And um, also, um, you can request a quota increase up to uh, 265,000 um, network address uh, usage units. Um, that's probably important when you add more than one IP address range to your VPC, which you can do um, those days. Um, so, and the metric is basically, um, yeah, monitoring the usage of that. And then the other interesting thing is why the peered network address usage is important and gets its own metric, that when you peer two VPCs, um, there's also a limit for the number of um, um, network address usage units um, for both um, combined um, VPCs. And um, the, the limit is basically for all VPCs that are peered in the same region. <laughs> so it's, it's only in the same region. If you peer uh, VPCs from other region, it does not apply. I don't know, it's just how it is. And um, the limit here is, the default limit is um, 128,000. And you can increase a quota increase to 512,000 um, network address usage units. Um, so that's when you, I don't know, when you have, I don't know, 10 VPCs or something, um, and then you have to be aware of these limits when they are in the same uh, region. Can I ask a question, Andreas? That, like, this is for VPC peering, right? But, but what about Transit Gateway? Is it also counted in mm. as peered, or how does that work? No, no, with, with Transit Gateway, you don't have this limitation. So the peered uh, network usage is only for VPC peerings. So when you do a Transit Gateway, only the a limit for the one C uh, VPC applies, which is probably not an issue. All right. And then what I also didn't know, <laughs> I, I was just reading through the documentation. I learned a lot <laughs> with that. Um, then I, le I, I looked up um, what, how many units do the different resources uh, within the VPC require. So 
as I mentioned, an IP version 4 or IP version 6 address assigned to a network interface um, requires one unit. But for example, a network load balancer requires six units. I, I, I can't come up with a reason for that. It's just the way it's described in here. Also, VPC endpoint requires six. Um, transit gateway attachment as well. A lambda function, six units. NAT gateway as well. And if you uh, attach EFS to an instance, it also requires six uh, units. So that is maybe something um, to keep in mind. Uh, overall, I think you should monitor those metrics, um, um, at least when you are working in a constrained environment where IP address uh, ranges uh, uh, matter. Yeah. So that's, um, I, I think what is definitely interesting is that probably most people think that the IP address is kind of the usage unit, which is not true because we have this like kind of additional unit, which is a network address usage unit where which probably mm. no one really is aware of that has never hit the limit <laughs> so that's definitely interesting yeah on the other hand i think it's coming very close so most of us probably are using yeah. a vpc with less <laughs> far less um ip addresses used and stuff and maybe peered with one other network and i think you never run into those issues i think this is really for complex complex network setups with many peered vpcs and stuff and with really uh, huge workloads, yeah. then I think you need to be aware of that. Um, if you just spin up two machines or 10 machines, even 100 machines, you're not running into any issues here. That's right. Uh, all right. So, Andreas, the next one that I picked is, is a, also, again, a tiny a tiny addition. Um, um, and I think if, if I remember it correctly, it, it's just um, adding a property to a cloud formation resource. And this is how uh, Aurora Serverless version 2 support is now uh, landed in CloudFormation. Yeah, um, that's it. <laughs> so you can now create a, a, a cluster uh, in, in, in CloudFormation. And we have um, a review about the service, Aurora Serverless uh, version 2 review, that, that we can link in the show notes uh, from May 2020. And this is actually one of the missing features that we identified back then. Um, and yeah, I think that's again like one of the the indicators uh, that that cloud formation is is lagging behind a little bit uh, because it actually took them quite a while to add that um, to um, the the resource property, and also for Aurora Serverless version two, there is not much progress. Um, so maybe we see something at reInvent, um, or uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Not not much is going on there. Um, so what what basically the main point of critique is that it is. Compared to version one um, that has its own problems, it is too expensive. Basically, that's kind of the, the, the main concern. And if you're in a serverless environment, it, it misses the data API. So it's very hard to connect to uh, from a serverless, like Lambda environment, for example. Uh, yeah, so we will see. Um, maybe we will uh, see updates um, around reInvent here. Uh, um, uh, if not, then I think we have to wait another year or so <laughs> until um, we can <laughs> give that a new... Uh, update and the review. All right, Andreas, that's it. Uh, so CloudFormation support, Aurora Serverless version 2. That was my item. Perfect. So the next one, that not the next announcement that caught my attention is um, the IAM Access Analyzer now reviews your AWS CloudTrail history to identify actions used across 140 AWS services and generates fine-grained policies. Okay, this sounds great. Actually, I I thought that they are already covering all the services, so I was <laughs> I was a little um, uh, concerned about that they are adding uh, 140 services now. But okay, that seems cool. Um, so how does that work? So basically, um, this is an this is only one aspect of the IAM Access Analyzer, and how you get into that feature is basically you open an IAM role. And there you can, at the very at the bottom of the policy section there, you can basically generate an, uh, the policy for that role with at least privilege principles, more or less, uh, automatically, based on what CloudTrail um, collected, the actions um, that CloudTrail collected in the past. You can specify how many days you want to go back, uh, stuff like that. What you need to have in place is you have to set up CloudTrail and it reads the data from an S3 bucket. 
So the whole thing needs access to the S3 bucket that stores your CloudTrail um, logs. And I was running in an issue, I couldn't solve it. So I was trying to get that working for half an hour maybe, and I failed. Um, so we are in our environment, um, we have an AWS account that we use to only collect uh, CloudTrail data and I think config data. And all of the other accounts in our AWS organization sent their data to this account, to basically two or three buckets in this account. And I followed the instructions in the documentation. Um, I um, changed the S3 bucket policy a little bit um, to allow um, the access analyzer running in another account to access the data, basically its own data from its own account, which it reports to our central account. Um, but for some reason, I'm just getting incorrect permission um, errors and um, I'm I'm, one, I'm not sure what exactly the issue is. It, it might have to do something with, um, because the owner of the object is the other account, maybe it's something like that. But I, I was not able to figure that out. Um, so I gave up on this um, after half an hour. Um, but in theory, it should work. And it's probably much easier if you have it in the same account. And um, the only critique I have about this feature in general, <laughs> the CloudTrail, using the CloudTrail history is that the CloudTrail history is not complete um, because um, there basically is one important issue. It doesn't um, collect all the actions, basically not all the API requests um, you're sending to the AWS API. It misses data events from services and you can turn on data events for some services like S3 and DynamoDB uh, you can do so, but then you're increasing the costs for those two services significantly. I, I forget the numbers, but it's, I think it's really something like you're significantly increasing the cost, for example, for writing an object to Dynamo or writing an object to a 3 by turning that feature on. So we have disabled that <laughs> in our accounts because it's just uh, too expensive. And also a lot of um, actions are missing. Michael, do you remember which service data events are missing completely from CloudTrail? Yeah, so I, I, I actually did some research just um, before the show. So um, what what we have is um, we have S3 data events and I think they are kind of they, they are capturing gets, uh, puts and, and head requests, I think. Uh, then we have uh, DynamoDB that only captures put item, update item and delete item. So it does not capture any of the read side uh, item uh, actions which is a kind of surprising. Um, and then we have Lambda, which only, or it captures, captures the invoke API um, action, but others are completely not supported, like data events for SQS, for example, like um, getting a message from a queue, sending a, a message to a queue. SNS is not in there, event bridge is not in there. So I think what the problem mm -hmm. with the access analyzer is that the team, I mean, they have lots of fancy talks about their like very fancy like stuff that they're doing, like reasoning, automated reasoning. I don't know, but the problem is that they optimize on a incomplete data set, <laughs> so they can have the best machine in the world to get like insights <laughs> from the data, but unfortunately, the data misses like most of the API code. So. Everything that yeah. you can generate with yeah, this that is, is not working. That is that is why I mentioned that this is only one part of the access analyzer. Yeah. And this is only the part that basically generates a policy out of the CloudTrail event. I think this feature is more or less useless because the data source, the CloudTrail events are not complete. Yeah. Then you can basically not build a product on that. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but there is another part of the uh, access analyzer, which is the part that you mentioned. This is where they just look at the policy and they try to figure out if this policy makes any sense. So they, they find things like, you're granting access to another account. Okay, here. Is that intended? Stuff yeah. like that. Okay. So I think you need to distinguish between those two things. Okay. I think the one is where their, their fancy reasoning goes into, and the other one is completely useless, more or less. So maybe there's no fancy reasoning at uh, all here. Okay. And basically the results from the other one, the, the reports from the access analyzer, are quite, uh, they are at least interesting to do reviews of your S3 bucket policies, IAM roles and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So I looked through those. It was nothing surprising for me, but it, it still was a nice tool to go over okay. those uh, things. All right, so sorry for that. Um, that that's it, right? And that, that was your uh, like your news that, mm -hmm. okay. 
So the, the next one that I picked, and I, I kind of notice a pattern here. I always pick very tiny changes, and you pick the bigger ones. <laughs> so at least the ones that need more explanation. So my, my next uh, change from last week is that AWS Lambda functions uh, powered by Graviton 2 are now available in 12 additional regions. And I think that that, that kind of increases the, the, the region coverage quite significantly. So more or less everyone can now move to uh, Graviton 2 if they wish. And what AWS says is probably you can just, I mean, there's not much reasons not to do it because all the code should, I mean, if you don't do fancy things, then your code should just work on, on Graviton 2. Um, and we actually did that. So we might, we have this like um, software as a service called Marbot, which is um, a, a chatbot that helps you to monitor and set up the monitoring for your AWS account. And we enabled or we migrated to Graviton 2 basically there. And now it gets interesting because AWS kind of announced that a new feature with the, the uh, idea that you can get up to 90% better performance and at 20% lower costs. So we deployed the change and we don't see any difference in any of our metrics. So the latency and stuff is still exactly the same. So I, I cannot say that, that we benefit like from a performance perspective from this. Um, I, I, I guess we will see next month uh, a 20% decrease in our lambda bill, which is, um, as Andreas calculated, <laughs> I think uh, it's 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 at the moment three dollars, so it will go down to um, two dollars and forty cents. So we will save sixty dollars cents. So after a year, that will be um, uh, seven dollars, which is great. <laughs> so yeah, ten years and the change is <laughs> worth the time that I put into that. <laughs> yeah, but it's still cool. Um, so it, it now runs on on on. Um, ARM-based uh, processors, right? And the only thing that we need to change was we have to make a change in our uh, CloudFormation templates, and that's it. Everything is working. Cool, yeah, cool stuff. So in general, I'm a big fan of Graviton 2. I think that makes a lot of things better. I'm also a big fan of my ARM processor in my MacBook, so yay, ARM. <laughs> cool stuff. So, but um, the last announcement that I picked is AWS IQ now supports partners and independent consultants in Australia, Europe, Japan, and other regions. So this is probably big news for a lot of people. Um, so what is AWS IQ? So basically this is a platform that um, AWS customers can connect to AWS exports, either um, partners or, uh, so that means consulting um, boutiques or consulting uh, firms and independent consultants. And um, so I think the only ones that could participate so far were um, based in the US and probably also the UK. I don't uh, remember correctly, but I think that it is. So now um, more people on the world can register and basically offer their skills, their expertise through that marketplace, because that's what it is. It's a marketplace for AWS experts. And um, I think the most important um, um, thing about the marketplace is um, the customers are paying through their AWS bill for that. And that is um, um, an important thing when you run a business because you're making it uh, very easy for your customers to pay you. Um, they just go th through the same process that other th uh, things go through already and it might not even, um, maybe someone, ev maybe even no one notices in your organization that you hired someone <laughs> through AWS IQ, um, at least for a certain amount. And also, even the fee um, is quite fair, I would say. This is not typical for Amazon, I would say. <laughs> so the fee is 2.5%. Uh, um, so if you compare that to selling books on Amazon or something, um, that is um, almost for free. And um, But still, I would highly uh, warn anyone to uh, use AWS IQ to offer your services through AWS IQ because I think this is really a race to the bottom. So what we will see there, so now I think it's still a good time probably to sell your services there. Uh, you're starting with probably very good rates there. I have heard about people that are making really good money on AWS IQ, but I think it will be a race to the bottom over time. And here's why. If you go uh, to AWS IQ and you uh, basically ask for help for a certain project, you will see um, freelancers um, applying to help you. And basically what you see is you see 
their AWS certifications and their reviews. And that's all you get. So that's all you get as an independent consultant um, to build your brand or to distinguish yourself from the others. So that's basically more or less nothing, right? So you have so AWS certifications. Um, over time, everyone will have all the AWS certifications, so there will be no distinguishing uh, factor on that. And reviews, okay. So this is maybe a little, uh, so we all know how to get reviews, like you ask a few friends and start with very small projects or stuff like that. So it's not really a distinguish, uh, allows you to distinguish from others as well. So I think, yeah, this is really, at the end, it's about the cost. It's about the price tag that you have on your request, on your offering for the request. And so over time, this is a race to the bottom. The rates will go down significantly as you will start competing to people all over the world um, that have um, more or less the same skill set than you. And I think you should probably build a more sustainable business <laughs> with, um, with, uh, over other um, uh, channels. That's my take on AWS IQ. Okay, so I think this covers um, the announcement that we identified as important um, in the past week. And let's have a short uh, break because we want to um, announce a few um, uh, sponsors, a few partners. And um, so we, we, t we talked about AWS expertise um, with AWS IQ uh, right before that. And we all know that AWS expertise is in high demand. So if you are looking for a job, I have two uh, interesting offerings for you. So first of all, our partner Demicon is hiring a cloud solutions architect um, with focus on AWS, working remotely from somewhere in the EU. So if you bring expertise in AWS, DevOps, infrastructure as code, continuous delivery, um, this is something for you. So this is a remote first uh, company, consulting company. And if that sounds interesting to you, you will find a link um, where you can apply for that job in the show notes. And also our partner TechRacer is hiring cloud consultants focusing on AWS serverless development. So you should apply for this when you like building serverless applications with Lambda, TypeScript, also Go, I think is a possible CDK. And um, you can join TechRacer in Hanover, Duisburg, Frankfurt, Hamburg, Munich. So that's their German uh, offices. Then we have Vienna, Lisbon, and Lucerne um, within the EU. So apply for that if serverless development is uh, what you are uh, looking for, uh, what you'd like to do, basically. All right. So that sounds great. So if you're interested in doing that all day, uh, then, then this is definitely something to check out. Um, all right, Andrea. So now um, I have a story to share or a lesson learned from, from last week. And um, what I did is I uh, developed a new feature for Marbot and I talked about that before, right? So this is the, the little chatbot that works on Slack on Teams that, that helps you with the AWS monitoring. And basically what I was doing is when a new alert arrives in the system, I want to enrich this alert with additional data. So for example, if a CloudWatch alarm arrives, I want to enrich it with the Cloud or, uh, CloudWatch metric graph so that you can see, okay, this was the metric like a couple of hours before and a couple of minutes after the alarm fired. So this was one of the things. Then we also have um, yeah, additional enrichments for other services, but that basically doesn't matter. So when a new alarm arrives, I want to do something in the background. And once I have the data, I can add it to the alert and then I update the Slack or the Teams message. So what we have, and we had this in place already, is a Dynamo.de stream um, for the table that stores the alerts. And yes, we are storing alerts here, so we are not putting everything into a single table, so I'm not a big fan of that. So we have an alerts table, and <laughs> there we store the alerts, and when something changes, the Dynamo.de stream is updated, and then a Lambda function listens on that stream. And what I did at the beginning and uh, was that when an alert was inserted, um, I uh, did something with the alert. And then um, a couple of days later, I uh, had a clever idea that maybe I should also do that when an alert is updated. And the problem is that when I do this enrichment, I also update the alert item itself in the table. And because I now also react to modify events in my stream, I created an infinite loop because every time something changed, I changed it again. And, and this just, this is, I mean, I know that this is a problem. Also, I should know that this is a problem, but 
In this case, it was like from looking at the code, it was not obvious that, that I will run into this problem here because this was just like a couple of functions down. Uh, I made a change to the DynamoDB table. And then I deployed this and I was kind of wondered, so why is there activity in the dev environment in uh, the stream? Like minutes after I sent the alert into the system, <laughs> And then I noticed, <laughs> oh, okay, it's always the same ID. So, so what's wrong here? And, and then I, I figured out, okay. So then the problem was figuring out who makes this change. And, and then it took me some time because it's not in the stream data. That like the, the, the principle is not in the stream data. And, and I mean, I, it took me some time to figure it out. <laughs> and then I also like by looking at the code and I, ah, okay, that, that's, that's obviously not a good idea. And yeah, we all know that, that, that that's a problem. And with S3 buckets and, and things, I think everyone sooner or later will create such an infinite loop uh, with Lambda functions. And the good news here is that the latency is quite high. So when you change something and then it takes some time until it appears in the stream. Uh, and, and because of that, I was not, the, the build was not really going up very significantly because it's so slow, basically, the infinite loop. And like if you do this with S3, it can be really, really quickly. <laughs> so I I created such an S3 infinite loop um, and it, it it really changes your AWS build within uh, within a short amount of time significantly. Uh, so so this is yeah just a reminder. Um, I don't know how to really prevent this situation um, because at least the code that that we have uh, the, it's not obvious what what really goes on uh, and uh, where the side effects are in DynamoDB if I call this function and stuff. So yeah. I think it's a funny story um, and everyone can kind of laugh about uh, that and um, but it I think the idea here is to remind everyone that that if you if you change from from this like insert to also react or modify you have to be a little bit careful if you modify the, the item itself uh, here so yeah keep that in mind when you work with DynamoDB streams to do some background processing of items uh, so for example yeah there's all kinds of, of things that that you could do here um, and it's a really nice feature, and I, I still like it, the DynamoDB Streams approach, because um, it, it's very easy to plug something in. I mean, it's it could be implemented with EventBridge or, or something else, uh, SNS as well, but it, it's really nice because you have um, some kind of... Yeah, the data is already there and, and, and things like that. Uh, so, yeah. So that's my, my kind of learning, or my kind of... It's, it's not really... I relearned it, basically. <laughs> I made the same <laughs> mistake in the in the past. Relearned the hard yes. way. <laughs> uh, but this time it was not so painful, because it, it's, uh, everything's a little bit <laughs> slower in DynamoDB streams. Yeah. Okay, Andreas. That that, that was most my, my, my little story from last week's programming experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Michael, for sharing that. Okay. Um, so last but not least, um, it's our uh, it's time to answer your questions. So basically, um, we collect your questions um, that you can send us over the week. So use the hashtag AskCloudOnOut, send us a message over uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. Also, feel free to email us or leave a comment somewhere. <laughs> we will find it. Um, that's basically what Kadian did on YouTube. He um, left the following questions, uh, a question in the comments. Um, I'd like to know your strategy for blue-green deployments. In particular, how do you know which color is deployed next or which color is currently active? I've seen this solved in a few different ways. I wonder what your strategy is. Thanks. Okay. Um, so let me try to answer or maybe can you start michael you do have may have been a better answer to that mm, yeah so i don't think that i have a very good answer um so the the the, the first thing is um that we don't really do blue green deployments um so that's uh, one thing to keep in mind i think the support of the tooling space in aws is not very great at blue green deployments as well i think that's why uh, the 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 question is about how to implement this because it's really something that you have to do on your own. Um, so yeah, what we do instead uh, is that when we deploy to EC2 instances, we use CloudFormation, which has an update policy and it can do this rolling update. Uh, and, and if things go, go wrong, it basically, I mean, you can configure it in a way that it spins up new instances first and then it can roll back and, and use the old ones or you can also make a configure it in a way that it terminates the old ones first and adds new ones. But this is, it's not blue-green, but it's kind of, 
it's also kind of i mean it's it's safe in in, in different ways but but it, it's good enough for our use cases uh, so we can uh, go back to the last ami basically quickly uh, because we have old versions running i mean not 100 percent at some point in time but but uh, enough to to uh, shift the traffic back to the old version and we also have uh, two versions running at the same time um that's the the main strategy for ec2 um for for lambda we we don't uh do any of that we just deploy the new version and um if things go kind of wrong we 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 fix and go forward and and this is like in our situation we we don't need to be able to kind of roll back a deployment and i think it's really like if you start thinking about this then you also have to start thinking about uh, what are the consequences of this uh, because what about your data and um, so if you all your changes then need to be able to also work with the new data but it's still the old code and things like I mean, it makes things a lot uh, more complicated and this is super hard to test for so i think it could also be very i think most blue green deployments will just fail if they roll back um, if 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 the data structure was changed uh, because it i don't think that that, that 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 most code bases will handle that properly and so yeah I, that that's just my take so i know that i mean there are large companies that need to do that and i think they have like or they put effort into making sure that they can do it properly but um, if you are uh, working in a smaller company or the app is like smaller i don't think that it's um worthwhile to to invest in that i don't know what's your take on that andreas mm. yeah so obviously we're not doing real blue green deployments um i think one other approach um, that I'm using is with Terraform because there is no um, rolling update as it is with CloudFormation for the auto-scaling group. With Terraform, what I'm doing is um, I'm um, using, is it called a replace policy or something? So I basically make sure that the auto-scaling group, um, that it creates a new auto-scaling group each time I do a deployment. And basically what Terraform does, it spins up a new auto-scaling group, it spins up new instances, and after they are... Uh, ready it uh, deletes the old uh, auto scaling group so this is also not 100% blue green deployment because you don't have control over that process but it's going in the same direction than what you described um you're bringing up the new version waiting till it's working and then um you are removing the old one and um i think one one service that comes to my mind is um code deploy in theory is i think covering use cases like that um, but it's, yeah, in my experience, a little inconvenient to get started with. Or I, th I don't actually, I'd never get into the service um, 100% because it's a little, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's a little bit complicated or clumsy. Yeah. Or I, I, I think that I the main problem say. of code deploy is that if, because we manage all the infrastructure with, with CloudFormation or Terraform, is it makes changes to your infrastructure. And that's kind of a problem uh, because it, it, yeah, it mm -hmm. modifies your yeah. load balances, your auto scaling groups, and all kinds of things. And, and that's, I mean, that's not, that's not cool <laughs> because I do that with CloudFormation, so <laughs> please don't do it. Um, yeah, so my experience with code deploy is it, it always clashes because we, we, we don't, well, I don't know if, if it's really useful for anyone. That, that automates infrastructure uh, creation because it, it really it changes your infrastructure um, and that's not what I want um, so yeah sorry again like this is like last time we also had like, a good answer for the question so questions are really hard here so maybe you can ask uh, like um, questions that are easier to answer next time I think it's fine <laughs> no but I think it's an interesting <laughs> uh, interesting question now and it, it definitely shows a pain point in AWS. So this is not solved. So code deploy does not solve that problem. So please uh, fix that AWS, <laughs> make it better and, and, and work uh, compatible with CloudFormation. Yeah. Okay, Michael. So we have, we have one more question from the, sh from the chat. Um, Shabraham writes in and he asks, how can I improve my AWS security? Yep. Uh, so, uh, okay, let me, let me this time start answering the question. You can jump in later. So I think um, what comes to my mind right away um, when uh, reading that question is um, a blog post that you have written a long time ago. Um, I think it's uh, still relevant. It's called the AWS Security Primer. 
and it contains a mind map that you can find copied all over the web. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's probably the most stolen content asset from our site. <laughs> and uh, basically the mind map gives you an overview of all or of, of the important aspects of AWS security. And I think this is a very um, good starting point because yeah, there's a lot of different things um, to consider from a technical side of uh, things. So uh, definitely one aspect is the AWS API and there is the IAM, uh, Identity and Access Management Service that you use to control access to this AMI. And then there are a lot of details to that. So you have things like IAM roles, um, you have things like uh, policies that you need to check for least privilege, um, you have resource-based policies for S3 and other resource uh, types. So there's a lot and to that and i think um it's when it comes to security it's important to have really an overview but also have um really are really able to go into the details because in the details uh it is um when, when we do reviews of accounts uh, on infrastructures it's always the details that matter because all those tools all those security tools like the security hub or i don't know third-party tools that you're paying for they all scan your accounts for the simple things. Yeah, they are all scan your accounts for the things that they can simply identify in your accounts and send you a report out of that. But in my experience, um, in the detail, it, it, there it is the, it, the most interesting when it comes to security. So your IAM policy, um, the um, yeah. assume role policy, who is allowed to use that role, stuff like that. That's where it's interesting. And um, of course, there are other areas. So there's the whole networking stuff with VPC. Of course, you need to um, be aware of everything there. So the firewall configurations, network configurations, monitoring configuration for that. Um, there's data encryption. So encrypt data at rest and in transit. Um, there is, um, yeah, other things like uh, service specific things. So with EC2, how do you connect to your EC2 instances with SSH, with RDP, are using key pairs, how do you manage them, stuff like that. So I think there are very uh, specific uh, problems to uh, specific services. Is there anything you want to add, Michael? Yeah, I want to add two um, aspects. Um, and the first one is, and this is a blog post, Andreas, that you wrote, so I will cite that as well. So it's called the uh, Security Iceberg, AWS Security Iceberg. So please don't like turn on security hub and then spend all your time making sure that all the findings are resolved. This is in most, like really most findings are not really improving your security. So I think what you should do, you should enable security hub, yes. And you should have kind of, you should understand what's going on there. But what you should do most of your time, like if you are the, like if you really want to increase your AWS security, I think what I would do is I would ask a coworker, okay, please sit, sit down with me for one hour and we just randomly pick IAM roles or IAM users and we, we will look at the policies and then try to make or try to understand why all these actions are enabled. Like, like why is all this access required? So this is what we call a review. And, and I think this is still the only really useful way in AWS IAM to make sure that you periodically check all the policies um, with different people, like not just like probably not only the author, maybe also like a, another one, another pair of eyes, and really question like all the, the, the access that is granted there. And so uh, this is, I think, our experience, Andreas, right? That this is the only way to get IAM policies um, right and also keep them right because things change. And this is your focus. I think this is the area where I, I would focus. There are lots of additional stuff that you can do. But if you don't get the IAM policies right, then all the rest is not really interesting for you. Um, so that would be my advice. So um, have reviews of IAM policies, like sit down with a coworker and just go and, and look through your IAM policies. Yeah, I think I would add something on a more general level. So I think it is important um, to build up knowledge um, on AWS security, uh, on all the details. Because I think um, with just a high-level uh, knowledge of all those things, you're not really going to identify the important aspects here in your uh, environments. 
So I think it's really important to learn about AWS security in detail. Start somewhere, use our mind map as a starting point, and then really dive into all those details very deeply. Because otherwise you will not be able to identify the important things. And even if you use tooling that generates um, uh, findings for you, um, you need to know about what's behind those things. Is it an important finding or not? You need to be able to distinguish um, the important stuff from the unimportant stuff. And I think there is no other, there's no shortcut <laughs> than really getting into the details. So maybe start with our mind map. I think it yep. gives uh, you a good overview of the important areas and then just try to build up knowledge in all those areas step by step. I know it's a lot. When you look at the mind map, you might be scared, um, but build up that knowledge over time. Start with what Michael said, the IAM, Identity and Access Management service. Start with that and then go into the other areas as well. Yep. So that's, I think, a good answer. I mean, uh, there's not... No, it's probably not a good answer, but it's uh, the, the only answer. So a lot of work, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have a, I think we have a follow-up question from Keith about um, the blue-green deployment uh, methods. And the question is, okay. what about using canary deployment? Um, um, it works similar to blue-green, but it's slightly different because you want to only uh, hand over a small amount of traffic to see if things are working and then switch over um, if everything is fine. So basically, I think the idea here is um, you are testing uh, in production by sending small uh, amounts of traffic to the new version, monitor uh, very closely what happens, and then switch the rest of the traffic uh, to that. Um, so Michael, I think the answer to that is similar to what we answered before. We are not actively uh, using that. Um, I think the service that is, um, in theory, capable uh, of doing so is uh, code deploy. Um, I, I think that's correct, Michael, is it? Yeah. Yeah, but the, I think the, the, the problem here is still that we don't do it because the tooling in AWS is not really mm. useful. Because you, what you can do with code deploy is you can say, okay, this, um, this percentage of traffic is going to this new Lambda version. Mm. I think that's what you can do. But I mean, that's not really what you want to do, right? You want to send X amount of your users to this new version. I mean, you don't want to randomly kind of pick that, like the request and send it to something. At least, at least that's my understanding of how this should uh, be done. But yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I think you will have to spend a lot of effort in implementing this because this is something that you need to do. It's not kind of out of the box available. And um, you ha I mean, you have to monitor this as well. You have to, like you need additional metrics that only monitor that kind of traffic. And that's, I mean, with CloudWatch, how do you kind of distinguish this version from the other by looking at the default metrics? It's not possible, right? So you have to know, okay, this version generates this metrics, the other version generates those metrics. And if something goes wrong in the new version, you can roll back or I don't know, look, you look at all the metrics and then you roll back. So I, that's, I think it's not really easy to, to do it at the moment. And I think, yeah. as you mentioned before, the question is, is it really worth, um, so as there's no built-in tooling that really helps us doing that easily, is it yeah. worth the effort implementing stuff like that for the, the standard ap web application that we all built that are not building for, I don't know, Amazon com or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if you, uh, yeah, I think, yes. So that, that's probably is, is kind of a good indication. So if, if your application is really very, very important and receives a lot of traffic and generates a lot of money, then, then probably it makes sense to build that capability, but you have to build it uh, on your own and it's expensive to do that. And if you are just, like running a, a, a more or less like usual web application or something, then I think no one will invest that money mm. uh, to implement it properly because you have to do that probably because otherwise you will just, I mean, then you can also just roll, roll out the, the thing if you cannot really detect if it is a difference to the other version. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's our answer to that. So, so one, one idea that comes to my mind is the whole feature flag approach and there might be app config that you could use uh, for that to turn on the f a feature for a certain amount of um, customers only and use stuff like that to build uh, similar things. But still, I think to get that to 100% with all the things that you mentioned, monitoring only those parts of the traffic and stuff like that, I think it's a lot of work um, to get uh, all that up and running. But I think that's maybe something that might help 
going into that that direction a little bit. So we are doing that, right, Michael? You you have been doing it for Marbot um, with a, basically a feature flag. You're releasing new important uh, releases, and you're only enabling it for a few customers. That's basically a little bit like a canary release. Yeah, that I mean, what we're basically, I mean, it's it's kind of it's it's more or less like it's it overlaps a lot. It's kind of a feature flag, uh, but it's also like more or less the same thing. So we can test a new feature in production with a like very small amount of users, and and this helps us to get confidence that it's working before we turn it on for everyone. Uh, so for example, with the change that I made last week that I mentioned with the CloudWatch metric graphs, this runs in production, but only for very very few customers. And in our case, we can also have like different Kinesis streams for different customers. So we can, like by enabling this change, we know that it only, like if it really kind of creates a larger problem in the system, it only affects a very small amount of our overall customers. And if you have this kind of separation, then then I think you can do this. But this also, you have you always have to keep in mind if you do something like this, that now we have code running that for some customers changes because this it required some new attributes in our DynamoDB table, for example. And now we see those attributes for some customers, but not for others. And I mean, because we only added something, we know that the old code still works, but um, you always have to be uh, kind of building the, f the new thing in a way that doesn't affect the old customers. So um, you have to keep that in mind. So there's no way to kind of migrate the data uh, or something like this. So if you do data migrations, like making changes to the table or something like this in a release, then this is not going to work. So, yeah, but, but I think this is a good example of a very low cost. This is low cost um, um, shipping features to a small set of features. We don't even use app config or any of that stuff to, to do it. We just have in our code, we have a function that says, is this a beta tester? And we put in the ID of the team and it says true or false. Mm -hmm. That's it. And that's our, our way of, of, of making uh, this decision. And <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that, that could be... Uh, also verifiable. like don't do all this fancy stuff just like do it um in a very cost-effective way yeah. yeah and also i think then it makes sense so what we do with that approach is we only do that for important changes so when we roll out a yeah. change that is a very small one just optimizing a tiny bit we don't do a feature toggle for just enabling for a few customers we just roll it out to everyone and if we do a bigger release that we in or we expect that that might break something in production, we then use that approach to mitigate the risk of um, yeah, affecting all of our customers at once. I think yeah. that's also um, yeah, an, a, good, a good approach. So I hope that helped a little bit, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, uh, thanks a lot for asking your questions um, in the chat. So um, we will try to continue streaming uh, this weekly show on YouTube. And next time we also plan to announce it a little bit <laughs> bigger. Uh, thanks for joining uh, this. Also, thanks for listening and watching this. Um, we'll be back uh, in a week. Uh, see you then. Bye, Michael. Bye. Thanks.